Amen. If you remain standing now as we read God's word together, these words from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Let us read together. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. We, we made it, right? We did it. We got into 2016, and um, I don't know if you're like many Americans, but um, many of us in this time uh, make these resolutions, and, and a lot of the times they're about self-improvement, right? Because this seems to be the season of self-improvement. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. Um, that, that many times in this season, in this new year, anytime we try to start something new, we tend to focus on ourselves, right? And so this is really the season of self-improvement. And, and I don't know if you watched TV last night, but you saw a bunch of ads for, for gyms and, and health food stores and, and all of these different things, and all of them are about self-improvement. All of them are about making ourselves better as we head into this new year, then we think maybe there's something I can will myself within me just to make myself just a little bit better. Because the common question that we ask in this new year is this, what should I do about me? Maybe you've asked yourself this, what should I do about me? It's a popular question not only to ask ourselves in the new year, but many Americans spend a lot of time asking themselves this question, right? This constantly me, 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 over and over again, what should I do about me? Well, what we learn about this question is that often it leads to a lot of negative thoughts. Uh, to be honest, this, this question really doesn't lead to many things that are beneficial. Now, uh, what we found out in a, in a journal of clinical psychology is that after six months, 46% of people who made resolutions were still keeping to their pledge. Has anybody ever gone through that? Anybody ever experienced that? I, I know that I have, right? There's this beginning of the new year, and, and you think, this is it. This is what I'm finally going to do this thing. And then really, you get like, you know, a week, even, um, you know, a day into the new year, and just think, oh, well, you know, maybe that's not really all that worth it. Right, and you get like all this willpower behind you the night of, like this is going to be the best year ever, and then tomorrow you're like, well, maybe next year, right? I mean, that's the way we think many times. And what we find is that if we make a New Year's resolution, we have less than a 50% chance of keeping it into the rest of the year. 46% of people who made a resolution kept it within six months. Within six months. What we find is that this really takes a toll on our egos and our psyches. Right? Because whenever we don't keep a resolution, there starts to become this, this vicious spiral that happens. And one of the things that happens is that we start to blame others. We start to blame others, right? Whenever we don't keep our own resolutions. Whenever we, we don't keep our own promises that we made to ourselves, we start to blame anyone else around us just to protect our own ego. Right? We start to you know, blame our family and our friends. You know, well, they, they really weren't behind me in that. You know, even, even though I asked if they would help me, and even though you know, they said they would, they, they really didn't do all they could. Right? And so they're the reason that I'm, that I'm doing this. Or you know, you know, my family even really couldn't even help me in this. And you know, this, I, I would have worked, but it really didn't. You know, we start to blame all of these people around us. And it becomes this, this vicious cycle that happens. All because we asked ourselves the question, what should I do about me? What should I do about me? And really, I think there has to be a better question out there. 
I really think there's got to be something better for us to consider than just this simple question about ourself and our own ego and psyche. And I think that's what the book of Nehemiah has in store. Now, we read out of the book of Nehemiah, and you might not have heard too much about um, this person. And I think to understand this book a little bit better, uh, we have to learn a little bit of history. And I'm, I'm about to embark on probably the most boring part of any sermon that I've ever preached before. Um, I know you're really excited to hear it now. No, but um, I, I think to kind of keep us engaged, we're going to do some you know, kinesthetic exercises. We're going to do a little something to help us learn this. Okay, so uh, Nehemiah is a Hebrew. He's a Jewish person, uh, but he's not living in the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and here's why. From about 1050 to 922, uh, the kingdom of Israel was one nation. They, they were what we called a united monarchy. They were ruled under one king, first Saul, then David, then Solomon. That's from 1050 to 922. And then in 922, they split. This is all BC. This is all before Christ. They split into two kingdoms. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Okay, everybody, if you can, just hold up your hands for me, just like this. Okay, so Israel was two kingdoms. You guys are doing awesome. You nailed it. Way to go, New Year. You did it. Okay, two kingdoms. Keep your hands up. Okay, so there were two kingdoms, right? Everybody wave your right hand. This is the kingdom of Israel. It was the north, northern kingdom, okay, 922. So just hold it just right about here, okay? That's good. Yeah, right there. And then the southern kingdom, everybody wave your left hand. That was the kingdom of Judah, okay? And it was under, right under Israel, as you can see. So you're going to put it right there. Okay, so this, these were the two kingdoms. How smart do you feel right now? You're like, man, I really wish I wouldn't have come to church today. You know, they had fireworks, but I had to come. Okay, so, so everybody online is just going to lose that line. They're like, well, I didn't have fire. Anyways, okay, so, <laughs> gotcha. Okay, 922, Israel and Judah, right? Well, then in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria. Okay, so Assyria, you can see the Assyrian Empire right there to the north. It was really the whole Fertile Crescent. And so what happened is, all right, here it comes. This is the time. Okay, so what happened is the kingdom of Israel was taken all the way into Assyria. Okay, you can just do like this and then just smack your neighbor. That was the Assyrians. That's what they did. They were bad people. They took the kingdom of Israel, right? They, they took them into exile. And then what happened not long after that is 586, uh, before this, Babylon takes over Assyria. And then Babylon takes over the southern kingdom of Judah. And so now Judah just goes all the way over here and then smacks your neighbor again. That was Babylon that time. Okay, you guys put your hands down. You did great. So, so this is what happened. Now, Nehemiah is, a, is a, a consequence. Him living in Babylon is a consequence of all these things that have happened. This is called the Babylonian exile. We have a, a little picture of it here to kind of help illustrate what happened. You can see this whole blue part is the Babylonian exile. You can see Jerusalem there um, and, and what used to be the kingdom of Judah. Uh, they were taken over 300 miles to the east into Babylon. And not only this, that their temple, their holy place in Jerusalem was destroyed. The place they believed God existed was completely gone now. It was burned. And not only that, but when they were taken into Babylon, all of the men were forced to marry what they called foreign wives so that they would lose their Jewish lineage, that their children would forget who they were, that they would completely eradicate the Jewish people. This is what happened. But not long after that happened, Babylon was taken over by Persia. And the Persian king, Cyrus, uh, made a decree in the year 539. It's called the Edict of Cyrus. Cyrus, after this moment, becomes Cyrus the Great. And he declares that all the Jewish people in Babylon can now go back home to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. They can rebuild their holy place. They can become a people again, that no longer do they have to remain in exile, but now they're allowed to go home and to rebuild their temple. Well, Nehemiah hears this. He lives in Babylon at the time, yet he does not go back home. He doesn't go back home, and he waits. 
and many of his friends and his family go back home, and he actually asks them how, asks them how it went. And, and here's one of the things we learned throughout this entire history of the Jewish people is this, that God's people were cast out but not condemned. God's people were cast out, but not condemned. We read it not only throughout the Babylonian exile, but throughout the entire Old Testament and then to the New, that God's people are constantly cast out, but they are never condemned. They are never forgotten. That what we see in the book of Exodus are these slaves that are serving Egyptians for over 300 years, and God still pulls them out of slavery, that when they thought all hope was lost, that yet here God is redeeming them when they thought there was no chance. That what we see whenever all of the Jewish people are taken into Babylon, they see their holy place destroyed. They believe God has no place to exist now. God uses a foreign king to bring back the Jewish people into their promised land. That no matter where they are, no matter how far they are cast off, they are never condemned. These are words of hope for us, friends. Nehemiah hears these words that people are cast off but not condemned, and he feels like there's hope. He feels like there's something he can do. And so in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, he asks his brother how the rebuilding of Jerusalem is going. Read about it in verse 2. He said, One of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men of Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. They replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. What Nehemiah realizes and what his friends and his family have realized is that when they left Jerusalem, when they were forced to leave to go into Babylon, that there were other people who came back and occupied the land. And now these people have been there for over 50 years. They don't want to give it up. And so now that these people have come back saying, Cyrus told us we can come back and build our temple. They said, he didn't ask us. You're going to have to go through me first. And so what they realize is there's this great struggle now to come back into their promised land. Even when they thought they were going to have this easy ride of passage, now they have to work a little harder for it. And Nehemiah hears these words and he says this in verse 4, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for four days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, here's the thing about this verse. We have no reason to believe that Nehemiah has ever seen Jerusalem. He's certainly never seen the temple, never experienced temple worship. Whenever Cyrus said they could all go back home, he stayed behind. We have no reason to believe that he feels any tie to the people of Jerusalem, yet when he hears these words, he weeps. He weeps. What happens is the news of Nehemiah's people breaks his heart. It broke his heart, and I believe that's something divine. I believe something happened within him that he didn't think would happen at first. He didn't have this tie to his people. He's never been to Jerusalem. He's never seen temple worship. And when he asked his brother what happened, he said, it's not good. We can't go back and build the temple. He weeps. His heart is broken because something supernatural has happened within him. Nehemiah hears these words and begins to weep. He begins to pray to God. Part of the prayer we read uh, just a little while ago, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. I think it's funny that Nehemiah says, Remember the covenant. 
right? The commandment. He, he's speaking to God, and he tells God to remember. And in fact, we, we read this throughout the entire Old Testament, is that people are constantly telling God to remember. Remember, remember the covenant you, you, know, you gave to this person. Remember the commandment you, you, you gave to this person. Or remember the promise that you gave this person. They constantly tell God over and over again to remember. And, and I wonder if it's so much because God has forgotten or if they're trying to remind themselves. Because here's what I've found to be true, that the best way to learn is to teach. Have you experienced this? That, that you know, if, if somebody asks how something works, if you're trying to explain something to your kids, if you've ever taught a classroom, what you find is that when you begin to teach that thing, you start to learn more about it than you ever would have had somebody just been telling you. And that maybe what Nehemiah has understood and what Nehemiah is experiencing is that he begins to recount all the promises that God has ever made throughout the Old Testament. As Nehemiah starts to recount from beginning to Moses how God liberated God's people out of Egypt if he wasn't reminding himself of this people that he had all but forgotten. These people he didn't feel a tie to in the first place, but now as he speaks to God, as he begins to remind God of the promises, he starts to feel something stir within him. And he begins to find this prayer is doing much more than just reminding God, but he himself is remembering this people of which he is a part. Nehemiah continues his prayer and says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. So what we learn is that the reason that Nehemiah was living in the capital of Babylon was because he was a cupbearer. What that meant in the time is that kings had these men whom they called cupbearers, and they were the ones who drank uh, the king's wine before he did to make sure that it wasn't poison. And in order to do this, these cupbearers had to follow the king wherever they went. And, and they would go with them. And many times, these cupbearers would form close relationships with the royalty whom they served. Nehemiah says, I was the cupbearer to the king. And here he is praying this prayer, and he asks for God to give success to the servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. The man he's referring to is Artaxerxes I, the first uh, king of Babylon. And Nehemiah is preparing to go before this king and make a request. And that request is going to be to allow him to take a leave of absence and, in fact, get paid for this whole thing. And he wants to leave and go home to Jerusalem and help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He's about to go before Artaxerxes, one of the most powerful men in the world at this time, and say, King, you know, I have this cushy job here in Babylon. You know, truly, nobody really has it any better than he does. And, and here I am serving you. And what I'd like for you to do is to pay me to go some 300 miles back home to Jerusalem so that I can help rebuild this kingdom that's not even yours, of which you kind of own but kind of don't. And I'd like to go back there and to rebuild that temple, and I'd like for you to pay me for it. A request he never would have made. But his heart was broken. His heart was broken. And so he makes the request. So we've talked about this question that we ask ourselves all throughout the new year. This, what should I do about me? And, and I believe that there's a better question that we should be asking. And that question is, what breaks your heart? 
What breaks your heart? Because I believe this question has the power to change the world. Because the answer to this question will inspire us to do anything it takes to make those things right. Because here's the thing about this question that doesn't apply to the what can I do about me, that this question is by divine design. That what breaks our heart is placed there by God. That that God has done this thing in all of us. That God has placed something within each of us that truly just turns us and stirs us and empowers us to action. And and here's the point, is that we have no idea how our response to this question about what breaks our heart, we have no idea how, when we respond to that question, how it affects other people. Nehemiah was called back to go to Jerusalem to rebuild those walls. But just a few years later, in the year 512 B.C., Zerubbabel was called to go back and rebuild the temple for the second time. He was called to rebuild the temple. So that in the year 446, Nehemiah could go back and he could build the walls around the temple. In the year 444, Ezra could go in there and he would read the the promises that God has made from the book of Deuteronomy. He would read the commandments that God has for God's people because they were people without commandments. They didn't know what they were doing. And Ezra goes in there and he reads the promises and establishes this temple worship finally again in the temple. And he does this so that 500 years later, in the gospel of John, that this could happen. That about the middle of the festival, Jesus went up into the temple, into the same one that Zerubbabel built, that Nehemiah built walls around, and that Ezra read the commandments in, that Jesus walks into the temple and begins to teach. And the Jews were astonished at it, saying, how does this man have such learning when he has never been taught? And Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. Anyone who resolves to do the will of God will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. Friends, this is what we call a divine setup. That all of these things might take place, that each person might respond to the breaking of their own heart, that each person might might respond to the call of God within each of them, that this might happen, that Christ might be able to walk into the temple and show that He is the Son of God. So I ask you again, what breaks your heart? What breaks your heart? And, and, And I pray that it would have something to do with God's people. That it would have something to do with all of those people who are cast off but not condemned. I pray that it would have something to do with those people who feel like there is almost no hope, those people that are all but forgotten. I pray that something within each of us would break for those people who feel that there is nothing left for them. Because, friends, what we read throughout the entire Bible is God choosing those very people to share His will and His love with. I would ask you, friends, throughout this next week, just for seven days, to ask God, what breaks my heart? There are many good things that we could do, and and, and there are many powerful things that, that we could 
try out. But the truth is, if our heart doesn't break around them, then we truly won't get the energy it deserves. There, there are truly many worthy causes, but unless something stirs within us, unless our heart breaks for them, and unless God has put it there, we really wouldn't put the power behind it that it needs. So I would just invite you to ask God for the next seven days, what breaks my heart? And, and maybe you already know, maybe throughout this time and in this moment, you have that thing just burning in your mind saying, that's it, that, that's what it is, that's what breaks my heart, then maybe you would ask God why. Maybe you would ask Him why. And, and not necessarily what has caused this, right? Not necessarily what has happened in my past and, and what are those things back there that have caused me to get to this point, but maybe what's in the future, what are those divine setups? What are those things that God has placed that might make happen, that, that God would cause something and someone else to act, that maybe I would ask God, why? What do you want me to do? As some of you might know, I am uh, from Oklahoma. I actually uh, grew up in Coweta, uh, just southeast of Tulsa. And um, it's actually uh, where I... Um, met my wife Melissa, and uh, it was a really great place to grow up. I grew up in, um, went to school there in Kuwaita, Kuwaita High School. Uh, we graduated with, you know, a hundred some odd people. And um, in high school, I was um, pretty cool. I don't know if you're like me. Uh, I was, I, I, thank you for laughing at that. I, I was pretty cool um, I, because I was in the high school band. Uh, anybody else were in the high school band? Um, thank you. Thank you for being brave. Uh, this is actually a picture of us. Um, out of our yearbook. And uh, these, these are my friends. These are people that I got to know really well when I was in high school. You know? Um, let's see. So uh, this is me over here. And, um, and in case you're wondering, this is Melissa right here. And um, this is my best friend Brady and my best friend Josh over here. We hung out together all the time. We did everything together. We, we were just constantly around each other the whole time. Um, I, I love these people. Um, another fact about each and every one of these people is that they're a millennial. They're a millennial. They, they, and, and what we've learned about millennials is that one-third of them do not have a faith life. That means... One out of every three of my friends growing up in high school have no faith community. They have no church home. They have no one to tell them that they are loved. For no other reason than because God made them. And they are worth that love. Friends, that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because right now there are more millennials without a faith life than any other generation. And I pray that we might spend our lives doing the things that God has called us to do that we would listen for that breaking in our heart, that we would sense it and feel it, and then because we find it, we would go forth and act. Because I believe there's no better way to spend our life 
than doing the very thing that God has called us to do.